Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached the verdict? verdict? Welcome to the John and Jordan on Justice podcast. Your weekly deep dive into personal injury and wrongful death law. Touching on everything torts, legal tech, trying cases to verdict, and the outlandish stories that come with them. And now, here are your hosts, John Fisher and Jordan Reed David. All right, welcome back everyone to the John and Jordan on Justice podcast. Uh, third episode, excited to be here, talk about some good stuff. Um, we actually have a special guest with us today. Uh, our first guest on the podcast, so that's kind of an honor. We have uh, Miss Keila Smith. She is one of our uh, senior litigation associates. Uh, she's a monster. Um, she's going to tell you more about it, but you know, she was at the former training attorney at the PD's office before she left, and we kind of pulled her into the civil realm uh, to try cases with us. And she's hit the ground running, and you know, so we're excited to have her on the show. So uh, welcome Thank to you. the show, Keila. Thank you. All right. And you know, why don't you tell everyone about yourself? Everybody knows John's story. They've heard my story now. I know you and I first met at the Public Defender's Office in Miami, but go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience. Yeah, I never know where to start with that. Um, so I went to law school in Miami. I, after law school, I got a job with the Miami Public Defender's Office, which was amazing. I was an assistant public defender for five years. My last year, I was a training attorney, which meant that means – I trained the incoming attorneys on, you know, rules of procedure, criminal, and mostly on trials and how to get into trial and how to effectively, um, I guess, be effective in trial. And then I came to Fishery David, which was a complete switch. So I went from all criminal, having all criminal uh, defense background to civil. And um, I've been here for almost three years. I know, I we're, know. <laughs> we're grateful to have you that's for sure and let me just say she's she's being modest and as well i guess that's a nice trait but keila is an exceptional talent she's an exceptional person and that that blends nicely into being an advocate i've seen her i've had the benefit of seeing her from when she first started out to where she is now and she's always been a rock star but you know last week we were talking about running a law firm and i don't think you get anywhere without the help of some really quality people and you're one so it's an honor for us to have you on first. And that's the purpose of today's episode. You know, you have an experience and a background in criminal. Now you've done three years of civil. I had a similar background and John has done both cases as well. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to go through a variety of topics and how things are different, how things are similar. And I think we should start with the clients. You know, I'll say that the one thing that we have in common between mm-hmm. criminal and civil is we're helping human beings. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's super important. Um, and that was the concern I had when I left doing criminal exclusively. I said, well, I know I'm going to help people, but is it the same degree? You know, there's a huge emotional component when you're representing someone with their liberties at stake, uh, not as much when it's just money at stake, but then you do it longer. And I realized now these people who need us, they've been hurt badly often. And justice is just as important for them as it is for the criminal side. Keila, what do you think now that you've done it a few years? Yeah, I agree. Um, There's a lot of similarities between, you know, representing people in the criminal realm because, you know, these are individuals that were arrested by the cops and they, you know, in when you're representing them, you're representing them against the government, right? With all of the force of the government behind them. And on the plaintiff side, even though in trial, I'm sure we'll get here, we are prosecuting the case, quote unquote, it's the same. Kayla, you're not allowed to use that word. I don't want to be associated with prosecution. <laughs> right? Right? And especially, you know how I feel about that. Um, but yeah, like we're bringing the case, right? And so you would think that it's less similar, but no, you know, what I learned is on the plaintiff side, we have this individual that comes in, they've been harmed in some way, and we are representing individuals against again an entire institution it's not the government right it's something even more powerful really because they have lobbyists uh mostly insurance companies so they come with the force of the insurance company behind them so it's real there's a lot of similarities with the clients because you know at the end of the day it's some institution that has uh there's you're representing them against an institution. Right. right? So, so you, you maintains that kind of that David versus Goliath yeah. mentality of that you're dealing with the force of the government behind you. But then you're right. You have insurance companies. You've got corporations. Mm-hmm. You've got, you know, multi-billion dollar 
entities that you're fighting against and sometimes against all odds. And it's kind of the same thing, you know, when you have your, you know, criminal context and I don't have as much, rarely any, um, criminal experience that, that you guys have. So, you know, but I see what you're saying and, and kind of understanding that, look, there are those similarities because at the end of the day, we're still fighting for the, the injured, the, the less fortunate, mm-hmm. the, the disenfranchised. You know, we do do civil rights work as mm-hmm. well here. So, you know, it, it, they're kind of, they kind of go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. So That's a perfect segue. And by the way, while you downplay your experience, I mean, you've tried a federal criminal case. A lot of people can't say that. You've tried state criminal cases. So, I mean, you have the experience and the knowledge. But civil rights is exactly what I wanted to talk about. That is the one common thread, which is when you can do 1983 work, where it's usually a police officer or governmental entity who's done your client wrong. That's the basis of the injustice. It could be everything as quote unquote minor as an unlawful search all the way to as serious as excessive force. And obviously the past couple of years, especially maybe a light has shined brighter on that area than it otherwise did, but it's, it's always been there. And I find that when we can help people who have been wronged by the government or police agencies, but we're doing it through the civil side. That's a perfect marriage between, you know, what kind of gets me excited, helping people where the system has done them wrong and you want to fight to get them justice. Um, Keela, you know, I know you've now seen both sides of that. How do you feel about that? You know, 1983 claims are, I, I agree, that is the merge between that civil and that criminal element because, you know, you do, it is the government and it's the government that's wronged an individual. But in a criminal sense, you are, you are fighting for an individual who's been wronged by the government. You're fighting for their liberty. You know, the government brings the case against this individual that's been wronged. And what I like the most about civil 1983 claims is that in some way you, you attempt to hold the officers and the government accountable for what they've done to your client. And so it feels really good that same client, if you're able to not only fight for their liberty, but say, you know, this was wrong. Right. And this is not just wrong, it's legally wrong. And so you should be compensated for it or you should, you know, bring this civil claim. I think that's the best part of the civil um, the civil side of 1983 in these kinds of cases. Right, and, and your accountability statement. I mean, to hold, you, you got to hold people accountable. And it's the same, you know, whether it's the government, whether it's corporations, mm-hmm. whether it's insurance companies. Like, you know, it's, it's ironic. They always think it's, oh, it's the plaintiff's lawyers. It's mm-hmm. we're the ones that are the bad people doing the bad things. When really, we, if, if everything was done correctly, mm-hmm we wouldn't have a job. <laughs> right. Right? Like right, we, exactly. We're not, all, the only thing we're doing is the only thing we can do, which is seek redress in our courts. You know, it's, we ask this question sometimes in juries, like our system of justice allows for the recovery of money. That's the way it works. Mm-hmm. If it didn't, if you couldn't recover money, what would you have, like how would you compensate someone for a harm or a loss? Right. And no one has the answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Right? And And so... The accountability when you hold, you know, because obviously in Florida we have sunshine laws, like very open public records. It's public. You know, there's a court filing, and, it, and if, it, if and when you're successful, you hold them accountable, accountable publicly, mm-hmm. right? So that kind of, you can see and start to effectuate change because if, if something happens and then it happens again and it happens again, I mean, then you have a pattern of conduct and sometimes DOJ gets involved. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that with the city of Miami, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, and their uh, police policies. So, you know, that, that kind of stuff is, is what's important and, and, you know, being able to kind of fight back yeah. against the government. Yeah, I mean, look, we're talking about 1983 cases and there's no question that's the common ground. There's a lot of elements that you can borrow from both sides including what people don't really think about, which is, you know, oftentimes in a 1983 case, your client might be in custody, serving a stretch in prison. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the more recent cases, John and I got to try in federal district court in 1983 case, excessive force, you know, our our client was serving, I think, 30 years. Um, And that's an interesting dynamic, but it's one familiar to those that have done criminal defense work. And so I think as much as there's some commonality at the end of the uh, painting in broad strokes here, you, you rarely, though, on the civil side are dealing with someone who's in custody. You are never dealing with someone where a loss in their lawsuit results in a loss of their liberty. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes their liberty's already been taken, mm-hmm. right? If they're so injured, they can't, they can't do the things they did before. But I can't turn back the hands of time. And I will say, uh, 
what I do miss on some level is having that deep connection with a client where you know stakes are exceedingly high, uh, sometimes effectively life. I mean, even a 10-year prison sentence, that can be li- that is life-altering, period, mm-hmm. yeah. end of story. And mm-hmm. you don't have those same touch points yeah. with the you know, the, the jail and prison system. Keel, I don't know how you feel about that or if you, I don't want to say missed that or, you know, where that was emotionally for you as a professional and, and how you sit now. Yeah, it's, you know, I was just talking about this earlier today. Um, the feeling when you have someone, when you're representing someone whose liberty is at stake. So in criminal, you know, it is their liberty, meaning their ability to move freely throughout this world is restricted, whether they are incarcerated or probation or community service or house arrest, you know, you're fighting for that person's liberty. So there's a lot of weight. It's a different kind of weight um, that's on you. And I loved being a public defender. I I really genuinely did. And, um, but I didn't realize how, how heavy it was because Mm -hmm. I took my cases very seriously. Um, You know, I, connected with my clients. I did the best job that I could possibly do because I believe in what I'm doing, right? And so moving to the civil side, it's a different kind of weight, that that weight of someone's liberty. Because when someone's liberty is at stake, you know, it's not just them. It is their families, right? You're taking an individual out of their family and you're mixing it all up. And it, it just has this ripple effect throughout the community that you are taking this individual from. On the civil side, it's not, it, it's not. You are, you are trying to get your client compensated for a wrong, an injury most times, or some kind of wrong that's been done to them. So even though you have that pressure, there's still pressure to compensate this person, this client for the wrong that's been done. It's a different kind of heaviness. You know, it's, a, it's different. It's a different kind of pressure. Um, yeah, and I, I would say, you know, I, I don't want to presuppose anything. I only know my own experience. But mm-hmm. John and I, it, it's not an accident that, you know, you were an important hire for us. And we're so grateful that you came. It's also not an accident that other people in our office have that experience being a public mm-hmm. defender. I found and I still believe that um, if you've had the experience, significant experience, standing between the government and someone's liberty, then when you have to just fight over money or making someone whole with money, no matter how serious it is, mm-hmm. you can deal with that pressure a lot better. At least yeah. that's what I've found. And so that's mm-hmm. a that's a trait that, look, you, not everyone's going to have that experience. It's not to suggest you must have it to be effective and civil, not at all. But for me, for my psyche, you talk about carrying things home with you at night. Mm-hmm. There's a whole, it's a lot less weight. Well, so let's let's kind yeah. of switch gears for a minute, if I can, John, because I want to I want you to talk, <laughs> you know, talk about this because you're the civil guy. Sure. Can you talk a little bit about the difference of the pretrial process, you know, filing a lawsuit versus having to answer to one, quote unquote, with a criminal case? And what are the differences there in your estimation? Um, you know, obviously, the differences are. Civil side, we, we are the ones running the litigation, right? We, we file the complaint. We serve the process. We get it going. We're the ones anxious to go to trial. We're driving the litigation home. You know, obviously on the criminal side, you know, the government is the one that has filed uh, the, the case, so to speak. They filed charges, whether that be by information or I don't know what the other one is, but <laughs> Keela will tell me. Uh, indictment. Indi- well, <laughs> see, see, she's going to correct me. Tell me. Correct me. Go ahead. No, I mean, it's not it's not really a correction, but uh, charges can be filed uh, if it's a misdemeanor through a form or a citation or, you know, information or indictment for like felonies. But it's okay. I'm being picky. No, it's OK. <laughs> correct me. I, I, I'm, I am humbled in, in, in any respect. <laughs> but no. So so obviously in that respect and then obviously there's discovery that's conducted. Which, what's interesting that I found about discovery is. You know, depositions that are taken. Sometimes you're not allowed to take depositions. You, you're like they could, they're doing a hallway where you just like talking to a cop outside before. <laughs> yeah. Like that's insane to me. Yeah. You know, and, and let's uh, let's be real. There's some jurisdictions around the country. I know I've spoken to colleagues. They don't even get that luxury. Yeah. Sometimes they're they're flying in the dark. And obviously in federal court, it's extremely different. You're you, you don't like here's your case. You don't get to know anything. And mm-hmm. by the way, you're going to trial and facing the rest of your life. So mm-hmm. that to me, I, I think it, it 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 seems to me, which is kind of opposite of the way it should be is because you have those risks of your liberty you should have more access to information mm-hmm. right 
you know, in a civil sense, you have access to information. You can file mm-hmm. motions to compel. You can go after. You can take and depose anybody you want to. Mm-hmm. You know, and to not be afforded that same time when, like, look, I have the risk of going to jail, and I can't do this, or I'm mm-hmm. I have to show a good reason why. How about they were involved in the case, and I want to talk to them under oath. Yeah. You know, and so that that to me is strange. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think in both in both settings you're reliant upon the opposing party to produce or make available the information that you need. And there's a variety of tools that you can use to try and get it, right? There's criminal rules of procedure and civil in each you know, state, federal, and, and, and is the same. But what's different is that when it's criminal, the repercussions for the government for non-compliance is far greater. I mean, the constitution is behind it, right? Brady versus Maryland and its progeny. I mean, there are serious consequences, convictions being overturned if there's prosecutorial misconduct, even when it comes down to discovery. So that affirmative obligation to disclose and make transparent everything is a lot more forceful and criminal in my experience. Whereas in civil, one of the most frustrating parts of civil is it's cat and mouse all the time. You know, sometimes you, you go against a defendant. It doesn't have to be a corporate defendant, but it feels like is this everything that's responsive? It doesn't seem like it should be. And you get the, yeah, it is. And then you got five motions to compel. And, and, you know, even when there's a wrong in discovering the civil context, Keila, I don't know how you feel. It's like the remedy is not really as strong as it should be, right? Sanctions aren't brought down uh, when I think that they should be, you know, when, when something is egregious. And at the end of the day, you can be pretty handcuffed trying to case in civil court because during the pretrial process and process and discovery, you have to fight tooth and nail for discovery that might have been incomplete. But let me ask you guys this question. How do you know that you talk about this affirmative obligation and we, we hear like, oh, convictions are being overturned, which means they're withholding evidence. Mm-hmm. How do you know? How do you like how do you know that they're complying with affirmative obligation if and then people are going to prison and then they find out about, oh, 10 years later, they had this information. This is culpatory information that they have to fight to find. And then they're out. Well, I've already lost 10 years of my life. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you know? you know, Keela, that they're even fulfilling this affirmative obligation? Like, how do you know? Well, you don't. Um, you really don't. You have to You have to really, as a criminal defense attorney, you have to do an investigation as well. You can't just rely on the government to provide you with evidence of your client's innocence, right? Like, as soon as you get a case, you need to do an investigation. You need to talk to witnesses. You need to canvas the area to see if there is any surveillance. You need to do these things because you can't 100%, you know, believe that, you know, they're turning everything over. Now, they might, it might be purposeful, right? That, I mean, that's, Nobody wants to think that that, that right. it's going to be intentional right. misconduct. It, it, you know, some people, you know, so you have good and bad attorneys, right? So, you know, some attorneys, they purposefully do it. Sometimes they just don't have it. Right. They should because, you know, depending on the law, I'm not going to get too much into it, but, you know, what the, what the police officers gather during their investigation is what the government, the prosecutor, should be giving over to us. Sometimes there's this disconnect between what the officers have in their possession and what the prosecutors have. Um, but to kind of piggyback off of something Jordan said about, like, the cat and mouse game, I think that um, although there are sanctions and different remedies that you can get in civil and then in, in criminal you have uh, Brady and all the, all the law, the force of the Constitution behind you, I always felt like it was a cat and mouse game getting the the government to give me discovery. You know, that's why it was important for me to use, you know, the right to a speedy trial to my advantage and to my client's advantage because I'm, you know, I'm filing my motion to get the discovery. I'm looking at that, you know, 30th day or that 16th day. I'm filing motions to compel, but when you get in front of the court, you know, sometimes the court can be very lenient towards the state, the government, and say, well, we'll reset this and give them time to get you the discovery that you should have had two months ago. And now your client is sitting in custody uh, waiting for trial. Or what I think is really undervalued is your client is out of custody waiting for trial. Right. Someone who is facing criminal charges, whether they are out of custody or in custody, they have the weight of incarceration hanging over their heads and that's a that's heavy for them and their family and it's just overlooked well did, did you guys i mean you both worked at the public defender's office i mean this may be a simple question but did, were you guys afforded the same resources as the state <laughs> i mean uh, 
Well, no, technically both sides are state employees, but it sure didn't feel like that. Right. And that, so, by the way, through no fault, through no fault of Carlos Martinez, the public defender of Miami, and everybody else down there, I mean, everybody does the best that they can with the available resources, but it never felt like even Steven, I don't know about you, Keel, it always felt like I was pushing a boulder uphill to get anything, you know? Yeah. There are limited resources. Look, that's the reality. Mm-hmm. Keely, you mentioned something interesting. You said the right to speedy trial. And <clears throat> I don't want to dovetail into a, a substantive lecture, but you know, that's my biggest pet peeve. John's heard me complain for years about it. In the criminal context, there is a degree of control. I'm hesitant to use that word, but I think it fits. Where if your client's out of custody and facing serious charges, and maybe there's a lot of other life circumstances that you want to drag your feet, you don't have to file a, a speedy demand. Conversely, if there's a benefit strategically to pushing the government to the brink of trial and trying a case sooner than later and not letting your client languish, or maybe he or she's in custody, and really wants a resolution, mm-hmm. you can you can file that speedy demand and you can put a clock on the government and come hell or high water, you know when you're gonna be in trial. Mm-hmm. When you come to the civil game, I mean, yeah. <laughs> first couple of years, John was like, what is your problem, dude? Just be patient. It's yeah. like, I don't wanna be patient, I wanna <laughs> go. I'm ready for trial, yeah. I'm ready. I wanna try this case mm-hmm. to verdict and it's a game of hurry up and wait. Now, federal court's a little different. You know, you file a case pretty soon thereafter, you're getting a scheduling order with a trial date, but in civil, even when you get a trial date in state court, rather, uh, it feels like it can be continued indefinitely. And I don't I, I miss that lack of control yeah. for the clients. You know, it's so slow. You know, that's that's a, that was a big transition for me, because in criminal, you you know, when we're at the PD's office, it's it's fast, but it doesn't feel that way. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I can file a motion to compel on Monday and I can have it on calendar on Wednesday. And the judge can say, well, 15 days to get you this, this discovery. And it just feels like forever. You know, when you go to trial or you set for trial and you say March 1st, you're set for trial. You come March 1st to trial and it's reset to April 1st. You're, I'm losing my mind. <laughs> you know, I'm losing my mind yeah. with my client. It feels so slow. And then you come over to civil and you learn patience. I mean, it's I'm still getting used to it. I'm still getting used to the how slow it is, you know, because you receive a motion and Jordan and uh, John, you guys do it way more and faster. But you get a motion, you reply real fast and you're into it and you're putting all of your cool stuff in it and you really you're ready to argue this motion. And then you argue it four months later. It's like, why? Yeah. you know, <laughs> things getting on judges calendars and civil it takes so long because of the backlog. It's no fault of the judges at all. It's just well, so slow. Yeah, and I, and I think that, you know, what we've seen is that the Supreme Court with the new the work group and what mm-hmm. they're doing is they're kind of really yeah. recognizing that. Mm-hmm. You know, good luck getting a continuance anymore if these rules are in effect. I mean, yeah. you know, they're, they're changing and putting in place that rules say that when you file a motion, they don't even need a hearing anymore, mm-hmm. right? You know, they could rule. You know, the problem is I don't think that the, the judges have the resources like federal court to handle that. They don't got six law clerks, two permanent, one temporary, three in school. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But that's going to be the expectation is that you set, you file a motion and it has to be set within 30 days. Yeah. You know, you, you, you write to, so I think that they're looking at it as they want to streamline this. Mm-hmm. They don't want this, this lengthy delay. And part of which is, you know, we do have the backlog. We got shut down for what? Yeah. 18 months yeah. or, you know, right. six, 15 months of trial, you know, and, you know, we've been fortunate to be have since COVID's come back, we've tried five cases. And so like, we want to keep this going. We want to keep this energy. We want to, you know, myself and Jordan, we're trying to case March 2nd, um, or excuse me, May 2nd up in Gainesville, Florida. I mean, that's our next trial. I mean, we're, we're going, we got the, got the confirmation and it's, it's happening. And so like, we're fortunate to, to try to push, but, all we can do is try to, you know, keep keep pressing, keep mm-hmm. pushing, keep filing, keep doing what we can, opposing continuances, and just push, 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 because delay benefits defendants. Mm-hmm. Not you know, that's you're, you're dancing on a razor's edge, right, when we're doing that. We don't want to concede any issues un, unnecessarily, but I think this is a good, you know, kind of final topic here on the pretrial, which is to say, in criminal, I think both sides, one thing that they have in common is, they want to make sure they're prepared. And then at some point, both sides just want a resolution, whether it's going to settle out or try it. The government needs to clear their docket. 
And in the criminal sense, the, the client you have wants a resolution. So there's some kind of like commonality of interest there. The civil side, even if it's only my perception, it's it's all I see. I feel like in the pretrial stage, that is where the defense attorneys want to live and die and stretch out as long as possible at times. And, you know, I'm not suggesting everybody's doing this or that sometimes there's not very legitimate reasons to stretch out the pretrial discovery process. But heavens, it feels at times like, okay, I, I wasn't sure how you were billing, but now I know for sure you bill by the hour because <laughs> depositions, right? Sometimes 30 minutes into a depot, we haven't even talked about what happened. That doesn't happen in criminal cases, never. You know, like tell me where you went to high school and where, where your auntie lives and like these things that don't matter. And it just, that is maddening for me because that builds in the, the delay and we're not getting paid for our time. Not that we have to make the most efficient use of it. I mean, at the end of the day, some things you can't, but- I don't like that lack of control where it's sometimes the defense can make a position or posture and tell the court, no, I need X, Y, and Z, and, and we can't go forward until I get it. And, and sometimes the courts are willing to accommodate it. Mm -hmm. So John, to your point, I hope that when the rules do change, if and when they do, that those things change. But I don't know, do you guys feel the same frustration with discovery that sometimes it feels like it goes on indefinitely? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, that's, that's most of it. It's just it's just discovery. Yeah. And, and I, I thoroughly despise discovery. <laughs> not 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 in the sense. How about that. John? Come on, I know you love when you serve in Florida. We have some some Florida Supreme Court approved interrogatories that you're supposed to serve out of the gate. These are approved by our Supreme Court. We send them. John, how often are you getting objections or incomplete every answers? Time, to them? Every time. I mean, yeah. that's that's the thing. That what what becomes frustrating about discovery is it's the same fights. Mm -hmm. on the same issues that have to go in front of the sit, you know, and I have to keep, and I keep winning. Mm -hmm. And it's like, at some point, you know, you know, and, and, and another change that's coming, is like big sanctions. Like mm -hmm. they're going to be sanctioning you for everything. If you breathe incorrectly, you're going to get sanctioned. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't mean that literally, but I'm just saying like, there, there's now going to be specific rules of civil procedure for just yeah. sanctions. And I, and I think that the way you effectuate change mm -hmm. is, you know, by holding people accountable. Yeah. Like, and, and, and look, I don't profess to be the best at discovery. And a lot of times I'm late. Um, I do my best. And, you know, because, you know, we, we see that the discovery, the reason why it's so important is because they use it against your client. So mm -hmm. it has to be correct. It has to be thorough. It has to be, you know, correct. And we don't object. Mm -hmm. I don't really, I, re I mean, we object to some things, but the majority of it, I answer. We're the open book. I want the, mm -hmm. I'm all about transparency and clarity, maintaining that credibility, mm -hmm. especially with the court, you know, because so they don't come on motions to compel on, you know, positions, or if they do, I have a very good legitimate reason with case citational support, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I think one of the biggest differences with the discovery in criminal and civil is on civil is a lot of uh, discovery on the paper. You know, these interrogatories we're talking about, you know, you just ask the question and the other side is answering mm -hmm. uh, under oath. Whereas in criminal, you know, e even if you're, participating as a criminal defense attorney in reciprocal discovery, it's not on paper. No one's sending you questions for your client to answer under oath. You're not sending the government or the, the uh, whoever is harmed questions under oath. Like you're, it's depositions <laughs> and trial, you know, it's papers in the form of like, if there's, you know, police reports and affidavits and if it's a, um, if it's a paper crime, you know, all the checks and all the things, but that is one of the biggest differences I saw when it comes to pretrial and from criminal to civil is everything is on paper. You know, you, you, you know, you don't have to take all the depositions because you have written questions under oath and you get, it's definitely more, um, open. The information is more. Yeah, I think that's a really salient point which is in the criminal context you're never going to have a case where your client is the tool of discovery i mean right. and they may have given a statement before they got involved with you but they're never going to be the source of information for your uh, opposition to leverage conversely you're never going to have a plaintiff that isn't a tool of discovery right. that won't be deposed that won't be answering questions under oath and interrogatories and that's a huge difference so you know we can have conversations with clients that are being charged with a crime and all that stuff is attorney client privileged. And, you know, whether we want to use it or not, it's kind of a strategic filter that we have. We don't have that. So there's a lot more. And John is the best I've seen at this. John is going to copiously read every single medical record historically that our client had mm -hmm. prep the client on everything. 
when push comes to shove and that client is being answered, uh, excuse me, asked questions under oath in a deposition, he or she is able to tell their truth, but without tripping over their own two giving the other side uh, something that they don't necessarily need. Now, John, I wanted, I wanted to lev- uh, transition here rather to the, the next subject, which is basically settling cases or resolving cases and the differences and similarities. And I think a good way to introduce this topic is to borrow from the last one about the pretrial process, which is in civil, you have to mediate your case to get to trial, at least in our jurisdictions. You're not going to get to try a case unless you've mediated it. And for those that don't know, that's like a forced settlement conference with a neutral mediator, typically a former trial lawyer or judge who hears both sides and all that. But maybe you can talk about that process a little bit. Sure. Well, don't forget, and something that we use is we actually move to dispense with mediation a lot. Um, that's what we do. So, so yes, it, it is required, but there is a motion you can file to not do mediation and just say, look, and we, you know, depending on some judges are receptive and say, look, you guys don't want to mediate. I'm not going to make you mediate. I, I'm like, it's going to be a waste of time. This is a trial case. They, they're, you know, we're both big boys on each side of there. Uh-huh. So you want us to make an offer? We can make an offer demand. I don't big need women. I, you know, big women. I'm sorry. <laughs> Big people on the other side. You know, we're we're all adults, right? We're all adults, and we can make decisions on each side. And so, what 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 I try to do is look, you know, and obviously these are discussions for different days. But when you're dealing with insurance companies, you you want to, in order to maximize recovery for your clients, you kind of want to open the policy. And what that basic premise is you got to give the insurance company depending on the case and and, and if it's promotes self an opportunity to pay the policy limits right and we do this sometimes e- even if it's 10k 25k 50k 100k million dollar policy afford them you know this is our and sometimes we do this is our final unequivocal settlement opportunity for the policy limits make sure you send it to your client mm-hmm. or they are insured the insureds privately retained lawyers which i know you've recommended that they get you know all of those things because trial is not not just is it not an easy process for the plaintiff it's not an easy process for some of these defendants mm-hmm. that are just glorified figureheads mm-hmm. right so you want to put some of that kind of that language in there about that and, and you know we tried a case recently we won again on paper, not what we wanted. We've got a new trial on appeal. And the defendant, who I actually connected with on a personal level at a deposition, was like, I have to go through another trial? And we, we've afforded the insurance company, like, look, just tender the limits. And they yeah, there's still- a real defendant, even if they're a figurehead, versus prosecutors who say, we represent all the people of the state of Florida collectively. Right. It's amorphous. Right. You know, Keela, let me ask you a question. I mean... Civil, I don't know how you feel about it. Even all these years in, I feel like it's hand-holding. Judges tell me, no, no, go play nice with the other side. I mean, I felt like when I was doing criminal defense, there was always an ongoing dialogue when you wanted there to be. And the other side had a vested interest in keeping that dialogue going to clear a case for them. So what do you think the differences are between settling cases and criminal versus civil? Uh, The differences, I would say one difference that comes to mind is the creativity that you can have a little bit in the in criminal again um you know we're talking about someone's liberty so it it does it is different when you have that conversation with the government they have something that they already you know whether it's their office that has these blanket kind of plea offers for this kind of crime not really specific to the individual um it's kind of a little easier to at least have that dialogue um, and think outside the box of what that plea offer would be uh, versus um, in civil, it's all about money and you're kind of just ping-ponging money, you know, and these are the reasons why. Look at these medical records, look at this. So, you know, you're using different facts, I think, but the I would say the similarity, though, is, that trial is always going to be the best negotiating tool. Um, you know, criminal or civil, I mean, trial is the best negotiating tool. So when you come And by that, I think what you mean, but just to clarify for the audience is the other side has to know that you will try the case. Absolutely. If they, if they don't believe you, no matter how much you pound your chest and scream and yell, if they know in their heart of hearts, you're just full of it, then it doesn't work. Exactly. And you know, every client, whether it's criminal or civil, I talk to them about trial and I explain to my clients why I'm talking about trial. I always explain, I understand whether you want to go to trial or not, but we have to prepare for trial because we have to be ready for trial because we don't know what the other side is going to do. 
right? And so as long as we prepare for trial, if, if the other side want to go to trial, whether it's the government or, you know, the civil defendant, great, we're ready. But most times they're going to see that you're ready for trial and you're serious about trial and they it's you're more likely to work that out in your client's best interest. Right. If I have a client that says, I'm going to trial no matter what, okay, we're going to trial no matter what, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, but or it, how about when the plea offer the is effectively life? I mean, you know, right. you know they, they force your hand, you know? <laughs> right. And so whether civil or criminal, again, you go walk through those doors Monday morning of trial and the other side's coming with something you know, that really gives your client pause, you know, even that client was gun ho about trial. It's like, well, you know, the government was offering you five years of prison followed by five years of probation, special conditions, all the things under the sun. Uh, but now day of trial, uh, they'll, they'll give you a withhold court costs and call it a day. Right. <laughs> um, and on the civil side, you know, they were offering $10,000. That's all they had for you. Now, morning of trial, we're at the 200000 that we were trying to get in the first place. Right. So, John, can you talk about limits a little bit? Because I, I think this is an interesting dynamic. It's not present in, in criminal. At the end of the day, in criminal, whether they offer you the maximum, uh, you know, jail sentence or they're trying to do some combination or supervised release or, community service hours, that's the creativity Q was talking about. In civil, as you well know, it's basically just dollars and cents. Right. But whereas the government has a lot more discretion and flexibility, mm. at the end of the day, sometimes policy limits, you're talking about open a policy. Maybe you can explain the challenges of trying to settle a case in a civil context that might be worth $5 million to the client deservedly, and there's only a 25 k policy, you know? So, I mean, sadly, that, that happens, right? You know, and... At least in the, um, you know, so the, the one public service announcement that I could make to anyone, you know, who listening who may not be a lawyer is that, you know, at least if for, for a motor vehicle crash, have uninsured motorist coverage, right? Because there, there is no legal requirement in Florida that you maintain bodily injury coverage, except if you cause a crash backwards, right? You don't have to have it up front. You only have to have it if you cause the crash. Think about how that's backwards. Mm-hmm you know, logic up there in, in Tallahassee. But, you know, that's that's the, the reality is they don't have to have insurance. People get in crashes, they don't have it, so you have this uninfer- uninsured motorist coverage. There's never a circumstance of criminal where I have to look at a client and say, sorry, the government ran out of freedom. Right. Uh, they can't give you what you're looking <laughs> for. You know, yeah. in civil, I have to look at clients often, and usually it's mm-hmm. from day one when we get the policy and tell them, look, it's going to take some creative maneuvering here to even afford you the potential of recovering more than this 10K or 20K or even 100K policy. And boy, that's not an easy conversation to have, right? Clients hire you, they're hurt, or God forbid, one of their loved ones has died or been catastrophically injured. They're looking for justice. Justice, as it relates to money, is a very big figure. And they're looking at you like, I don't understand why you're talking about $10,000 or $100,000. That's a drop in the bucket. That's a hard conversation to have. Now, there are hard conversations both ways, criminal and civil, for sure. There's a lot of commonality there. But I think civil, what's a unique challenge is you have to educate the clients, I think, a little bit more than you do in criminal. Everybody in criminal understands I'm accused of something serious. I know what my my maximum exposure is. And they kind of inherently understand the nuance of what we can negotiate with. In civil, I don't find that. I find that some clients, understandably, come in a bit ignorant of the process and They've been wronged. I mean, John, how many clients have we had to turn down after investigations? I'm sorry, there's not even coverage, you know, and uh, that's a hard conversation to have. It is, and it, and it can obviously you have the feelings of frustration and, well, who's going to pay for this? And, like, I was wrong, and I'm like, you know, that unfortunately the reality is, is, you know, as much as we want to be here to help people, if there's no one to get recovery from, if the person doesn't have a wealth of assets. And Florida does a good job, I don't want to say a good job, but they, they have very uh, debtor-friendly laws and protect people's money, mm-hmm. right? You know, they come down here, retire, they, they don't want people to come after your money. So, you know, a lot of times if there's not an available pot of insurance, lawyers, you know, and, so, and ourselves included, sometimes won't take the case. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not always the case, but a lot of times it is because essentially all the work we were doing is probably going to be all for naught or for, you know, to, to, to make mm-hmm. that client at least whole on paper. But... So, you know, when you have that opportunity to say, look, they, they, they have a catastrophic injury and it's like there's a $10,000 policy mm-hmm. and the insurance company tenders the limits and like that's it. I mean, that's and yeah, yeah. A lot of th- 
And so you, you try to, and then you've got a $250,000 lien from the hospital, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And it, so, so there is those, those different things, but w- the benefit we do have on the civil side is that when you give them that opportunity to, to pay to the insurance company and they do not pay and they should have done everything, they should have paid it. You can tell the client confidently, look, let's go to trial. Mm-hmm. This will give you an opportunity to get more money. We had a case we tried. It was a $10,000 policy. They offered $2,900 pre-suit. We're in litigation. The medical bills are over $20,000. The, they're offering $6,500 in suit after our clients deposed. You know, and then we go to trial and get a verdict in excess of only two hundred grand. but... They're going to be on the hook for everything, including attorney's fees, costs, and all that. So what was could have been a $10,000 result may be upwards of $800,000. And the client, instead of getting $3,000 or $2,500, bucks, maybe after payment of medical bills, <clears throat> have two hundred grand. So, so it's a good and bad, but after those point in times, the only way to really get true value and true justice is to go to trial. And I think the yeah. same with you guys when yeah. they're offering – a non-existent plea they're offering you you know we'll give you 25 years it's like well what's the point and you know two things the first is sometimes you're going to trial just to get something reasonable um but the second thing something like a difference that just came to mind when you were talking is you know there's just to bring it full circle back into accountability right the government bringing a case that they absolutely should not bring that the law does not support, they can, they still bring it. They bring those cases. They try those cases. And whereas in, you know, what's the risk for them? Nothing. There's no risk. There's not at all. You know, I've had clients, you know, we talk about how many trials we've had to verdict and then how many were um, dismissed mid trial or on a judgment of acquittal, which is after the government has put on their case. Right. Or, you know, the first judgment of acquittal anyway. And, it's like, yeah, I've been in trial almost 40 times, but only 25 or so are to verdict, right? Why? Because we're going to trial just to get that jail away. We're going to trial just to get this dismissal, right? We're going to trial so this, you know, uh, jury can give us this five-minute not guilty. And then the government goes home, and, and the same thing happens again and again and again to the people in our community. There is no accountability, nothing that, you know, the government – you know, they don't face anything. They, we don't have the resources to bring all of these cases, yet they're using resources to bring cases that really should be dismissed. I used to, I used to joke, it's a perverse joke. I don't mean that it's like genuinely humorous, but it's the government's always playing with house money. They could shoot yeah. dice all day long and crap mm-hmm. out every single role and it doesn't affect them mm-hmm. one way or the other. Yeah, they're spending taxpayer money that should be consideration, but brass tax at the end of the day for the average line prosecutor that you're interacting with you know, outside of their ego, you know, taking a loss doesn't feel good as a person, as a competitor. There's no real repercussions. Let me ask you this, Keela, because uh, this is another difference. In civil, I've never had a judge say, I reject that settlement. Keep, you're going to trial. As far as I'm concerned, judges in civil are looking to clear their docket. And I understand why there's a lot of lawsuits. Uh, criminal, you can have a judge step in and say, I'm rejecting the plea between the parties, essentially. Uh, that doesn't happen all the time, but they, they can do that. Uh, I don't know. I mean, have you had, ex- I'm assuming you had experience with that in criminal and not having that here does feel like, at least for me, it gives us a little bit more control. Yeah. <laughs> Some judges do that. Uh, they, I find it, I, I don't know. I find it interesting that they do that considering, you know, the parties that know the most about the case being the prosecutors and the, um, and the defense you know, came to this agreement and some judges just for whatever stated reason they have say, well, I'm not accepting that offer. And the hardest thing about that is actually communicating that to the client. Because once you have this agreement, you're like, okay, well, the government agreed, we have this. And, you know, you explain to the client now, you know, the judge has to, you know, agree to enter this plea because at the end of the day, the judge is, the one who is imposing the sentence. And I found it it hasn't happened a lot to me, honestly. Um, But I found that my clients really did not understand once we had an agreement, why the judge would do that. And then it, it scares them for trial because now they're saying, well, the judge is going to give me worse if we lose. Um, So it just, it throws sometimes an unnecessary wrench 
in the midst, middle of it. And, you know, it, it's not something I see in civil at all, really. I haven't seen it anyway, although I know. That John, let me, uh, well, the let benefit me pitch is, it over. Yeah, I was going to say ahead. the benefit is we unless there's a, you know, a ward or a minor, judges don't have to approve anything. Yeah. You know, this is our case. We have all, con you know, total autonomy to control it as we see fit. And if the parties reach an agreement, it's settled. Mm -hmm. But if it, you know, if it's a minor, but even in that context, you know, if you do the right things, you dot your T's, you got some kind of thing set up for them, the judges mm -hmm. are going to sign off on it. I mean, yeah. some of them have, what, two to two to 4,000 cases, mm -hmm. you know, so that's a benefit we have in civil for sure. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, I mean, I could, I mean, to be scared yeah. into trial and then yeah. if I go to trial now, like, so then they sometimes will t agree to a worse plea. Yeah. And I, I have never seen or heard of a judge saying, well, that plea offer is just too harsh <laughs> i've never gotten that one you know never oh no that's too harsh and by the way listeners if you've ever had that please let me know yes, I'll order that please. transcript and make uh, wallpaper out of it seriously john can, can you do me a favor and educate people in the audience who might not have the hands-on experience you know uh keel and i we did criminal before this and when you're negotiating a plea in criminal you're really just dealing with your colleague on the other side the line prosecutor to the extent that they want to defer to, you know, maybe one of their supervisors. Mm -hmm. These are real people you can meet with, right? You can go to their office and sit down with. Conversely, on the civil side, we're always dealing with a man or woman behind the curtain, it seems like. Mm -hmm. You're talking to opposing counsel or defense counsel, rather, and but they're really just the intermediary between the insurance company, who's got an adjuster behind the scenes, sometimes out of state, and they're the ones holding the purse strings. So maybe you could talk about some of the frustrations or strategies in, in dealing with that interplay. Yeah, I think, you know... It opposing counsel is not just I think they're not just simply the the go-between because and we saw this Jordan where you can have opposing counsel that believes in your case and that will actually kind of fight for you and mm -hmm. say look you guys need to do the right thing here right we saw sure. this in a case of ours you know against a governmental entity that was mm -hmm. like not only that they were like you need to pay the limits and it's a little bit self-wasting you need to pay it all even even the self-wasting part like we'll come up with it so no let's get let's give shout outs i give shout out uh, episode one chris stearns he's a lawyer down in south florida he does defense work he's a straight shooter he cuts to the chase and uh when the evidence supports it it's not like he's just out there conceding anything he's a tough fighter super super sharp and aggressive but when he reaches a point in a case where he realizes what's in his client's best interest is probably resolving for a fair number, he gets the job done. So shout out yeah. to people like him. I know he's not alone. Yeah. And so, so you have that, you know, you can have that relationship with the opposing counsel and then, but I think conversely, you could have opposing counsel. That's like, we can win, we can win. Don't mm -hmm. pay, don't pay. Yeah. Right. And they, they kind of get in the insurance provider's ear and they're like, don't pay. And, you know, and, you know, we're going to go to trial on a couple of cases that are like that. And so, you know, you, you want to, you know, I started. Do you ever really thing. know what the adjuster's thinking, right? That's what's no. different for me. It's like, if I talk to the line prosecutor, I can get a pretty good flavor of what he or she is thinking. So by the time I speak to their supervisor, to the extent that they were brought in, I already know what's been shared because I've been told it. Mm -hmm. I feel like, I don't know about you, but I, I, what I don't like on the civil side is I don't often have a direct line to the adjuster. Mm -hmm. There's often that go between. And I, I don't like that game of telephone because it's like, I can send an email, I could send a letter and I know they're going to read it, but sometimes I just want to pick up the phone and be like, let's meet in person and let me show you what's what, you know? You're waiting a lot uh, in civil also. You can send that email or make that phone call, but they're going to take a while to get back to you um, to, with that number. And the other difference, and it's a little different with private um, practice, right? But you see those state attorneys in court in criminal, right? You see them every day. So like... I know where to find you is, is really uh, the point. No you know, sometimes I used to just go to court just to, I need to talk to you, <laughs> you know, and if you're not answering a phone call or an email, you know, I just know where to find you. So I'm going to go in court. I'm be pa I'm going to be patient, but I'm going to talk to you about my client, you know, and, and see what we can do to get this resolved. And if it's not you, it, you know, I'm just going to kind of talk about Miami. Then if it's not this line attorney, then it's their CT, their chief training, uh, you know, the chief in that courtroom. And if it's not that person, then it's the senior supervising attorney. You know who all those people are for each courtroom, for each place. And so you just know who to go to directly and you have that open line of communication, like Jordan was saying. So it's definitely different. So look, with the time we have left, I think I don't, I don't want to say, the, say I, we're saving the best for last because 
but in my estimation, we are. I love being a trial lawyer. I know the rest of us do too. Let's switch gears to talk about trial mm. and the differences of trial. Um, and as we do that, let's give a shout out to Keela. Week one, episode one, we we're talking about the Marsha Gonzalez verdict and you were a team member right there with us. It was a three-person trial team, me, you, and John. And yep. uh, without your involvement in that case, you handled a ton of critical witnesses, including before and after the client that verdict of 2.5 million doesn't come home for that client. So hats off to you. Now that you're here, we can we can show our appreciation in person. But Thanks. having just come off your first multi-million dollar jury verdict as a civil litigator, maybe you could tell people what, what the differences are like in your experience now as someone who's tried a ton of criminal cases and is trying more and more civil cases every day. <laughs> There's a lot of differences. I mean, I'm going to try to narrow it down to what I find to be the biggest, which are the experts. Experts are so huge in civil, and that's, you know, I learned that through the um, through the trials that you guys allowed me to be a part of, and especially this one, which is so heavy, and I'm not going to go into it. I'm sure, you know, I know episode one you did, but, you know, in, the, in criminal, I think criminal is very fact-specific. Now, you do have, uh, you do have experts. You have uh, fingerprint experts and DNA experts and, you know, all these different experts that, you know, are necessary sometimes, but it's very fact specific. In civil, I feel like most of the trial, it, it really is battle of the experts. And I read that before I became a civil attorney. And now I understand it in this last trial really brought it home. You know, it really boiled down the importance of just knowing the science behind what you're doing. So um, I would say that's the, the biggest overall difference. But I mean, jury selection is different, right? Um, in criminal, the jury selection, you know, you definitely want to voir dire on your theory of defense is how you always, you know, when the judge, when there's a objection. Don't pretry your case, Keila, careful, your case, don't judge, your case. I am, you know, I am just voir dire on my theory of defense, <laughs> you know, see if they're open to hearing my theory of defense. But outside of that, I focus so much on the Constitution. People take it for granted that everyone talks about your right to silence. And I think a lot of attorneys assume that the general public understands what the right to silence actually means. And most people don't, most lawyers don't understand uh, what the right to silence really means. And so in civil, I'm sorry, in criminal, it's very much focused on that constitution, right to silence, right to trial, right to, you know, all the things that you want to make sure that the jury understands. And one question that I ask every jury member, um, no matter how big the panel is, is, you know, you're, you're chosen as a juror in this case. Some people get confused by that, by the way. They actually think they're chosen. Um, they're like, congratulations, you've been chosen. Yeah, you as a process of elimination. Right, uh, right. So you've heard, you know, the government has put on the entire case. You've heard nothing. This is the last time you hear from me. The defense does not ask a question. You know, Mr. and Mrs. whomever, they don't get up. This is the last one. You're chosen. You go in the back of that jury room. What is your verdict? And people really say guilty, right? They say guilty they, or they'll say, well, why didn't you get up? Don't you have to say something? And I have to explain these things. And I think that those kinds of questions, I think, lead to not guilties because if the, if the jury understood what their job is, then you're, you know, reasonable doubt. That's a very high standard. Juxtapose that with civil, right? right. John, I, you've tried both cases. John's, what do you yeah. feel like the... The strategic differences or the or the challenges that are present in criminal or excuse me in civil because it's a lower uh, burden but it's our burden versus in criminal it's reasonable doubt a super high burden but we don't have it if we go into criminal trial I could sit there and do a crossword puzzle all day and never put on a witness mm -hmm. I don't have a duty to do so so maybe you could talk about that a little bit having the burden and, and being what it is so I I think that definitely having the burden is different. Mm -hmm. in, in the context, I actually like having the burden because I think you get to talk about like, well, I'm going to prove my case. Hold me accountable. Mm -hmm. Like in jury selection, like you talk about educating the jurors. A mm -hmm. lot of what we do is education, mm -hmm. right? Not just to our case, but into the law. Like, look, mm -hmm. you can have 49% doubt. You know, you can not be, you know, I'm not really sure. We still win. Mm -hmm. If you're like, I'm not really sure, but I think so. Like mm -hmm. we still win. So, you know, when I, what I saw. What does Keith Mindick say, your mentor? What does he say about reasonable doubt? Well, a reasonable doubt does not create an out. And Mentor by proxy, by the way. John's a 
voracious reader of Mendix material. Right. So, and, and it's right. that's so like the way to look at the civil like like because that's what they do. They the defense tries to focus on things that that don't matter to create doubt. Well, guess what? That's not reasonable. Doubt does not create an out. It's like you take things and put them in context. Show why they don't matter. Show why we're right. And I think when you're the defense lawyer, at least in my practices, you know, Jordan had me come like, and this was my first trial ever in my life. And I, it was a DUI, criminal DUI trial where our <laughs> client was driving the wrong way down State Road 84. Pulled over, stopped, refused field sobriety. And Jordan was like, come on in, you can try the case, just do opening statement, you're fine. I was like, I don't do criminal law. I've never been a criminal lawyer. I mean, I took criminal law and criminal procedure in law school. <laughs> that was it, right? Yeah. So he says, um, you'll be fine. Just tell them what you're going to hear and then tell them what you're not going to hear. And that was literally my theme. And I got in, I like, you know, and, I, and at one point, I, and this is part of the fun you can have in mm-hmm. trial, is I think I, I acted about what you're not going to hear or see. Was, and I, I acted like I was stumbling drunk out of a car <laughs> and used the lectern mm-hmm. as like a prop. I was like, you're not going to see any of that. You're going to see him on video. Looks fine. Talks fine. Mm-hmm. You know, blah, blah. You know, and he's going to tell you that he, he took his GPS. And if you go to State Road 84, you take a left instead of a right, which says, says do not take a left. You're going to end up on the wrong way, which is he said what happened. Mm-hmm. You know, and so being able to take a case and poke holes mm-hmm. and create doubt, mm-hmm. you know, just saying like, look, like this doesn't make sense, yeah. you know, and to, to his former partner, you know, if it doesn't make sense, it's nonsense. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't add up, it's made up. And, and I, and I think <laughs> Shout that, out to the Miami PD's office. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everybody in Miami knows what this is about. You know, and, and I, and I think that works, you know, and I, and I've used that, you know, in the, in the civil context as well, because some of the things that they say, like to try to create doubt, that doesn't like, that doesn't make any sense. And so when you can present that as like, they have the burden, that's extremely high burden. Someone's liberty's at stake. You take it seriously. And if like, look, if you're not sure, it's a not guilty. You know, and so you you can't be not sure. Well, I mean, I guess you can have doubts, but they have to be reasonable, you know, and everyone gives Mm -hmm. that. I don't know if there's like aliens or something they do in jury selection. Uh, I don't want to hear another prosecutor. Yeah, I know. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But but you know what I mean? So so I think having done that and seeing, you know, what you can do from the defense side, like you can have some fun. Mm -hmm. You know, you can almost and, I you know, I saw. You know, there was a trial, and I wanted to mention this earlier, and I know I'm going to backtrack when we talked about being fearful. Jordan asked me to try a case with him where the guy had like four life felonies he was facing Mm. that he said, I want to go to trial because I don't want to lose my right to vote. Mm. That's what he said. I don't want to be a convicted felon. That's that's important to me, and we're going, it's not, I'm not guilty. Jordan got the case off the wheel. Uh, all the lawyers were like, plea out, plea out, plea out, plea mm-hmm. out, plea out. Jordan was like, you want to go to trial? Let's go to trial. Mm-hmm. Jordan's like, come try this case with me. I was like, four life felonies? Like, no thanks. <laughs> I, I literally. I'm not going to sit in there at council table solo. So I was fearful, but but I came to trial. So I came mm-hmm. to trial. I just didn't, I wasn't beyond the bar. Yeah. I was be, be, back here talking to Jordan. Mm-hmm. And he, you know. We, we went in with like it was a setup job. Our client testified. You know, Jordan's of like, look, you can, and obviously there's there's differing views of thought here, but if you're going with actual innocence, mm-hmm. like this was not you, not they didn't prove their case, like actual innocence, you have to testify. Mm-hmm. Jordan had him testify, and he was like, you know, it was a raid of a house that wasn't his. They tried to say it was using the ID. Mm-hmm. Well, his ID had a different address. Mm-hmm. So when Jordan was cross-examining the cop, he blew up the ID. It was like, you said on this affidavit that the source of this information came from his ID. Here's the ID what ID are you looking at? Mm-hmm. You know, and it got to the point that a career, you know, uh, narcotics detective stopped court and was like, I just have to say something. This wasn't sworn. It's not an affidavit. Started getting like, you know, and open. Got him. Got him. <laughs> right. right? Yes. You know, yeah. and then he got. That's when you just start walking back to the council table, like, mm-hmm. pay him no money. That's when, yeah, right? That's and when you just I, drink and, your water. And that was Mr. Like, you know, Jordan flapping open his, you know, <laughs> his jacket. It was like, yeah, yeah, I appreciate that, but answer my question. Like, that's where, what ID were you looking at? And he didn't have an answer. Well, listen, for let, me, let me say, because I, I know we're running short on time, but I think this is an important point. In both criminal cases you've talked about, the first one you ever tried, that DUI, yeah. and then the one you were talking about that I handled with that drug trafficking case, both instances the client testified. That wasn't by accident. Um, I feel like there's a little bit too much of uh, lackadaisical thinking on the criminal defense board. That's how I felt when I used to do it regularly in terms of, oh, just never have them testify. Constitution protects us, it protects us. And I mean, yeah, that's true conceptually, but I think it ignores the reality 
of human decency, which is if you're asking me to walk you and acquit you, uh, I'd like to hear from you. You know, that's a human tendency. And I don't care what a prospective juror tells you, but no, no, I won't. I won't hold it against you. I have found in my career that even if it is just a reasonable doubt case, to the extent that I can put a client on, I don't care if they have impeachable priors. That to me is like way overblown Mm -hmm. Uh, with the proper prep. I think it goes a long way. And I have found that I've been able to obtain far more acquittals on very challenging cases merely because in hindsight, the client testified and the jury found some degree of credibility. When they don't testify and all you do is leave it up to the mere speculation of the the audience, so to speak, the jurors, I think you're in a lot more trouble when they go to deliberate because now they're just hypothesizing. I wonder what he or she would have said and things like that. Keela, how do you feel about, um, I mean, obviously in civil, your client's going to testify anyway. You just did the direct of Marsha in our case that got us 2.5 2.5 million. So you're familiar on that end. But as we kind of bring this thing down for landing this episode, maybe you can tell the jury a little bit about counseling clients on whether to testify or not in the criminal setting. Yeah, um, I agree. It's it's case by case. I think what's cool is me and John tried our first case with you. So that's really funny because my first criminal trial was with Jordan as my co-counsel. And I think our client uh, testified. It was the road rage case. Um, And so the beginning of my legal career, I was always open to it. And so now on a case by case basis, it's not something that I could just go, well, it's criminal. So he he or she does not have to. It It is the same evaluation as I would do with anything else. Is it necessary for you to testify? How would a jury see this? Right. Um, So I would say my clients have testified in about half of my criminal trials. Um, Sometimes I just saw it as unnecessary. So just to kind of push back a little bit I did ha- I remember one case um where it was an armed robbery just the the evidence was poor to put it lightly and there was just no reason for my client to get on that stand what the only thing that he was going to get on that stand and say is I was riding my bike on a beach one moment and the next moment I was being pulled off by the police he had no story to tell he was innocent he had it was just a regular day for him that he sat in jail for almost, you know, a year waiting for this trial. But there was no evidence against him. And the, you know, the government spent money to fly the uh, the witness from France to testify where he couldn't even identify our client as the person who had robbed him, right? Just ridiculous facts. It kind of fits into, I once watched uh, someone else try a murder case it was a cold case that they brought like I think it was like 15 years later mm-hmm. but it was one of my mentors and it was in Miami and I think strategically the lawyer knew going in the client wasn't going to testify for whatever the reason was yeah. but knowing and- that so yeah you're right every case is different he used something interesting in oh. here where he told the jury um look I don't have a burden so that means if we start playing this game think of a sporting contest by the time the state rests the clock strikes zero. If I look up at that scoreboard and we're winning, I'm not going to ask for more time to play. Just walk my client and go home. And I thought that was a very creative way of uh, foreshadowing to the jury in a case where you yeah. know the client's not going to testify. But the, look, the this has been is, a this is oh, sorry. Go ahead, Gil. just one more no, thing. Um, sometimes you make the decision <laughs> after the government put their case on, you know, like you've kind of prepped the client, but you know, you do look at that scoreboard and you do kind of see, all right, you know what? I think the jury actually want to know this, right? So you get to take your break. You talk to your client. Depends on the client for sure if they're going to be able to go up there. But I think the one other case we tried together, Jordan, that happened with uh, his last name was Smith, but he got on there and they said, oh, you're on felony. You know, you have a felony. He was like, I'm on probation too, right? Like, that was one one of those cases. We did not go into that trial saying that he's going to testify. We're like, you know what? This is ridiculous the way the government is painting this. And it's necessary for them to hear from our client. Our young black client who saw a black SUV in a high crime neighborhood, because that's the only reason it was a, a, a crime, it was resisting without violence, you know, what do you think this part, this young black man's gonna do when he sees this tinted out, no unmarked vehicle roll up behind him saying, yo, yo, I don't think that's a cop. I think that is someone dangerous and I'm going to run. The jury needed to hear that side, but we didn't go in knowing they were gonna hear it or need to right. hear it until the right. government rested with these, um, you know, 
facts that were out there that really didn't represent what what happened. Well, I can say I've learned uh, one thing unequivocally today, which is Keela needs to be a regular guest guest <laughs> on this because she's a wealth of information and, and experience, and her perspectives are welcome. So, Keela, thank you for joining us today. We're definitely going to have you back. And for everybody out there, thank you for spending the time. And don't forget, if you're watching us on YouTube, you know, smash that like button, subscribe, or if you're on Spotify, wherever you listen, feel free to rate us and share us. We appreciate it. John, any uh, parting words for the audience? No, I just, you know, thanks again for tuning in. But, you know, I'm really, um, you know, I'm amazed at how how far you've come um, uh -huh. since, you know, and in the short amount of time, and I'm excited for to watch you grow and develop a, as a, an advocate as a trial lawyer and i'm fortunate that you can be here for our clients so Aww. thanks for coming thank on. you you're welcome thanks guys thanks for checking out the john and jordan on justice podcast if you enjoyed today's content consider leaving us a review and be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode for more information or to connect with john and jordan check out at on justice pod on instagram and twitter or check out Discord for plaintiffattorneys.com to communicate with them and like-minded plaintiff attorneys in a private Discord server. Until next time, this is the John and Jordan on Justice Podcast. Podcast.